But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now listen, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he went about groping for someone to lead him by the hand. That rather dramatic confrontation takes place in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, in the New Testament of the Bible, when a man named Saul encounters a preacher and magician named Bargesus on the island of Cyprus. The passage is interesting for a number of reasons, but the most interesting part for me is that Saul comes out of the encounter with a new name, Paul, and the name change comes for no apparent reason. As a writer and a thinker, the Apostle Paul's gigantic influence on early Christianity is undeniable. But in many ways, he is more interesting as a character. His journey is fascinating. By his own admission, Paul was a Pharisee and a persecutor of the Christian church. He went through a stunning transformation that led to him preaching a Christian message throughout much of the known world. He also apparently changed his name. This is something that is never referred to in Paul's own letters, but according to the later account in the book of Acts, he was originally known by the very Jewish name of Saul. In the book of Acts, the name changed to Paul does not occur, as you might assume, at the time of his conversion to become a follower of Christ. It doesn't happen until years after that, and is only mentioned in passing, as if it were nothing very important at all, in that passage I read a moment ago. After that, it is as if the name Saul has disappeared, and we only ever hear about Paul again in the book of Acts, except for in a couple of flashback scenes. And I can't help but wonder why. Why is there a name change, and why is it never explained? And why should the book of Acts make the change at this particular point, in the middle of an encounter between Paul and a magician on the island of Cyprus? Did something happen on Cyprus that we don't know about? I can't help but ask. Is there a story there? This is Retelling the Bible, and I am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. Episode 2.5 When Saul Became Paul
Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of Cyprus. It was a good gig and a great honor. There was no doubt about that. Emperor Claudius had given him the position and he would be forever grateful for the opportunity. But, well, it was Cyprus. Uh, don't get me wrong, Cyprus was very nice. Beautiful beaches, lovely women. But let's just say that it was no Alexandria or Athens. It was certainly no Rome. Paulus liked to think of himself as a philosopher and a great thinker, like his patron, the emperor. And he longed to have the kind of philosophical discussions that were easy to find in major cities. But here, in Cyprus, people only ever wanted to talk about fish and sheep and olive groves and things like that. It was all so dull. So Paulus was always on the lookout for anyone passing through the island who had new ideas or philosophies. He spoke to the devotees of various Eastern mystery cults and religions. The followers of Isis or Mithras were always lots of fun at a dinner party, for example. Magicians and various kinds of traveling charlatans were always good for a laugh, too. Word quickly spread far and wide that anyone with a good story or philosophy or a new god was more than welcome at Paulus's court. And they came. Mystics from Egypt, magi from far-off Persia, prophets and preachers from Judea, Syria, and Samaria. It was never hard to get them to come. Though... Paulus certainly had a hard time getting a few of them to leave. A perfect case in point was Bar-Jesus. He was a Judean prophet and wonder-worker who came in the late fall. At first he held the entire court in rapt attention as he told these wonderful stories about the strange God of his people. They believed that there was only one God, if you can imagine that and the various heroes of their history. He had this one story about a fellow named Moses and how his son got circumcised that had people alternatively gasping in horror and rolling on the floor laughing. His so-called magic, mostly a series of party tricks, was a bit less inspiring, but he was a good fellow and Paulus became quite attached to him. But then the months went by. Bar-Jesus developed quite a fondness for the diversity of Paulus's wine cellar. It became difficult to pry the man off his couch in the dining room, and when he wasn't drinking, he was usually causing drama in the slave quarters by seducing chambermaids. It was exhausting, and Paulus began dropping hints that it was time for Bar-Jesus to move on. Don't you think it's time for you to take your show on the road, he would ask. You know, I'd be only too happy to give you a letter of introduction to the governor of Bithynia. They say he has the largest wine cellar in the East. You know, he said on another occasion, 
I'll bet they'd love to hear some of your stories in Alexandria. But nothing seemed to work, and Paulus began to think that he had taken on a permanent parasite in Bar Jesus. New preachers from Antioch had landed on the east end of the island. They were Jews, but they sounded very much unlike most Jews that Paulus had ever heard of before. By now, everyone knew that Sergius Paulus loved nothing more than to hear the news about philosophers, preachers, and wonder workers. So the men had scarcely been on the island for a week when Paulus was receiving regular reports about everything that they were doing. That was how he learned that there were three of them. The leader of the group was a man known as Barnabas. Barnabas had actually grown up in Cyprus himself and had a number of contacts in the local synagogues, and so he led the group around to speak in the various gatherings. Now, there was a bit of a trend in those days among Greeks and Romans who, like Sergius Paulus, were interested in matters of religion and philosophy to frequent the meetings in Jewish synagogues. They were fascinated by this Jewish idea that there could be just one great God instead of many, and loved to talk about the ethical and philosophical ramifications of this idea. Of course, None of these Gentiles would have dreamt of actually joining the synagogues. There were certain <clears throat> surgical requirements that no self-respecting Greek or Roman would ever consider. Well, some women did join, but that hardly counted. Nevertheless, that did not stop some of the men from becoming patrons to the institutions and supporting them with their wealth and their political influence. You didn't actually have to become a Jew to admire so much of what they stood for, after all. The interesting thing about this new group of preachers, led by Barnabas, according to the reports that Paulus was receiving, was that their message didn't seem to be particularly connecting with the Jews in the synagogues, but that they were getting lots of attention from the Gentile hangers-on. In fact, they were drawing some of the wealthy patrons away from their support of the synagogues, which of course was only getting the Jews even more upset. This sort of controversy was just the thing to pique Paulus's curiosity and he sent the newcomers a most gracious invitation to his court. When they arrived, all ragged and dusty from the road, Paulus was not particularly impressed with Barnabas, who, while he was obviously very kind and gregarious, was a bit of an intellectual lightweight. He didn't have much time for the second man in the party, the youngest, a timid little mouse of a man that they called John, either. As they began to talk together, the proconsul's attention kept returning to the third man in the party, whose name was Saul. 
He was clearly intelligent and well-read. That alone was rare enough out here in the provinces. He knew some of the great Greek philosophers and was clearly well-steeped in the traditions of his own people. As the evening progressed, it seemed only natural for Paulus to find himself reclining with this Saul on one of the corner couches and sipping on a cup that was constantly replenished while the other man told him stories of his own life and of the patriarchs of his people. Saul's stories kept coming around to a certain Jesus, apparently some troublemaker who had been put to death by Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem some years earlier. Paulus had known Pilate, of course, but wasn't particularly surprised that he hadn't heard of this particular outlaw who would have been only one of many that a procurator would have had to deal with during his tenure. When Saul spoke of this Jesus, however, his voice changed, and there was this odd light in his eyes. He claimed that it had been Jesus who had given him the mission that he was now engaged in. Wait a minute, interrupted Paulus. You're saying that this Jesus is the one that sent you out on this voyage? But Pilate has been gone from this part of the world for years. If Jesus was tried by Pilate, then surely this man of yours has been dead for a long time. Saul just smiled for a moment. You are finally starting to understand, my lord. Yes, Jesus was crucified years ago, and yes, he still speaks to me and to Barnabas today. Don't you get it? God raised him from the dead. Alarm bells started to go off in Paulus's head. A man who calmly spoke about talking with a dead man? What kind of wild-eyed religious fanatic had he invited into his home? Were these people safe? Or were they madmen who would murder his family in the night? Paulus didn't have much time to wrestle with these disturbing thoughts. At that moment, another house guest, one who had now far outstayed his welcome, bar Jesus, came stumbling into the room. His eyes were red, and he stood there swaying drunkenly while he blinked, trying to understand the unusual scene. Apparently, he had been in the kitchens for the last few hours, as had become his habit, drinking with the slaves and generally corrupting anyone who would listen to him. But no sooner had the old lush entered the room than he understood completely what was going on. His eyes brushed over John, without hardly even registering him. Clearly he was no threat. They lingled a little longer over the open and good-natured Barnabas, but finally narrowed on the figure of Saul reclining on the couch in the corner with the proconsul. "'My lord!' he cried. "'Who are these guests that you welcome to your table on this day?' They look to be my own countrymen. I'll warn you that many Jews are nothing but hustlers and grifters. 
What foolishness have they been selling you? My dear Bar-Jesus, the proconsul responded, These men are from Antioch. They say that they are followers of some man named Jesus? A relative of yours, perhaps. Maybe your father? Paulus didn't know very much Aramaic, but he did know that Bar meant son of. He was just joking, of course, but he was taken aback by the response that his jest earned him. Followers of Jesus, Bar Jesus snorted. Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, I've heard of them. They're scoundrels, a lot of them. They have strange practices like allowing women to be leaders in their assemblies. If you love me at all, my lord, you will send them away at once before they corrupt your entire household with their dangerous ideas. The young John cowered in the corner. Barnabas stepped towards the drunken man in an attempt to calm and soothe him. Bar-Jesus would have none of that. Leave me alone, you follower of a sick and twisted way. Your kind disgust me. The proconsul felt the couch move beneath him as Saul stood to his feet beside him. The man was deadly calm. You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, he said. There was no anger or emotion in his words. It was as if he were just plainly stating facts. You are the one deceiving your host. You are the one who is making crooked the straight paths of God. And so God is against you. God's hand will punish you. You will walk for a season in darkness, and you will not see the sun. Bar-Jesus whirled around to face his accuser, and as he did so, he tripped over a small table. He went down, hard, and immediately began to scream. He cried out that he could not see, that he had been attacked and blinded, though no one had touched him. Paulus gestured to his body slaves, who picked up the man and led him away, as his shouting gave way to weeping and lamenting. The procurator never saw Bar-Jesus again. He was put out the door early the next morning and made his way for a while with a staff and a begging bowl. Fear not for Bar-Jesus, though. His sight eventually did return to him, and it turns out that he had pocketed that letter of introduction to the governor of Bithynia that had been offered to him months before. For all I know, he still inhabits a couch in that governor's palace. Saul and Sergius Paulus talked well into the night. Barnabas and John soon got tired of being completely left out of the conversation and went off to bed. Saul was quite a persuasive speaker. 
and he soon had the proconsul taking the notion that the God of the Jews was the only God quite seriously. He even seemed open to the idea that this God might have raised Jesus from the dead. Before they finally went off to bed, just before the cock crowed, Paulus expressed his appreciation to Saul. I don't know when I've had such a fascinating and diverting discussion. You know very well that I can't personally become a follower of this Jesus of yours, but I want to follow your career. I am also especially in debt to you for finally ridding me of that parasite, that bar-Jesus. Please tell me, my dear boy, what can I do for you? You must let me display my gratitude. Saul had anticipated this. He did not have to think long at all before responding. The three travelers left the proconsul's palace later that same day. Saul was exhausted from all that had happened the night before, and he spoke little. Barnabas and John looked at Saul in a new way and hesitated to engage him in a conversation. They had seen their companion in ways that they had never seen him before on the previous day. They had always known him as a good and persuasive speaker, and as someone who had a deep understanding of the traditions of their people. But they had never seen him perform wonders before. When Bar-Jesus was struck blind at a word from Saul, it was like they were watching their friend become an entirely new person right in front of them and they weren't quite sure how to relate to this new person. Barnabas cleared his throat. throat) Um, Saul, he began. Paulus, answered his companion. Uh, sorry, Uh, what? Paulus, you shouldn't call me Saul anymore. I've been thinking. We have been sent on a mission to preach the good news about Jesus, and our meeting with the proconsul has convinced me that many Gentiles will continue to respond to our message, just as we saw in the synagogues in the east of the island. A very Jewish name like Saul? That's not going to open too many doors with the Gentiles for me. I need something that sounds more... Roman... Okay, but why Paulus? It was the suggestion of my new patron. You have a patron? Since when? Since last night. You mean Sergius? Paulus. It was young John who finished that thought, showing for the first time that he did have a clue how the world worked.
Here's the thing. No one has a really good explanation for where the name Paul came from. It certainly was a much more Roman-sounding name than Saul was, so it is certainly not surprising that the Apostle Paul preferred it, given his particular mission to the Gentiles, but nobody ever explains it. In his own letters, Paul never even mentions that he had another name, though he does describe his origins as being so quintessentially Jewish that you've got to assume that he must have had a Jewish name. But it is the book of Acts that has always made me wonder about the name change. The author just informs us of the name change at a seemingly random point, quite apropos of nothing, in the middle of a story. And thereafter, he only uses the name Paul as if the other name had never existed. It's just weird. But I've always wondered, was it really only coincidence that the author locates the name change on the island of Cyprus just after Saul meets a man named Paulus when Saul was living in a world where it was actually quite common for clients to take the names of their patrons. In all honesty, yes, it may just be a coincidence, but I've always wondered whether there might not be an explanation. And if there was an explanation, well, then there had to be a story behind it. And I wanted to tell that story. So, I just did. If you enjoyed this story, please come back again next week for another take on an ancient biblical story. Tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for Retelling the Bible is Ah Da, and the mood music for this episode is Living Voyage. The music is by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. Please send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter, or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. See you next week as we plunge back into the Old Testament with a great story of intrigue, creativity, and how the Bible itself came to be written down. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>